You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. The Epistle of Jude exhorts the faithful to contend for a faith that's handed down and at the same time delivered once and for all. In our own moment, tensions arise between Scripture's testimony to divine act and some modes of modern thought, which by default regard stories of the fantastic and the unusual to be unreliable at best, delusional even worse, and outright lies at worst. Matt Wahlberg, in his 2014 book, Revelation as Testimony, invites Christians to reconsider the role of testimony as a mode of knowledge when we do theology. And today, Christian Humanist Profiles is pleased to welcome him to our program. Thank you for joining us, Matt. Thank you very much, uh, Nathan. I'm happy to be here and this interview. Well, good. Well, Matt, your book starts with categories that students of rhetoric will know from Aristotle's rhetoric, among other sources, namely the non-artistic or non-invented modes of argument that involve testimony. Talk about how that notion of testimony as a source of knowledge fares in classical and medieval philosophy, both in the ways in which they remain cautious the way that we are, and also the ways that they value testimony more than moderns tend to do. Uh, yes, in the book I I talk about uh, an enlightenment pre- prejudice against testimony. Mm-hmm. And uh, but of course, I mean if you if you read the classical and medieval authors, you you can also see that some of them them are a bit suspicious about uh, testimonial knowledge. Uh, they don't all recognize uh, testimony as knowledge in the proper sense. Uh, but it's important to remember that when, for instance, Plato or Aristotle or Thomas Aquinas talk about knowledge, they use uh, Greek and Latin concepts. They use the concept of episteme and uh, mm-hmm. scientia. And those concepts doesn't quite, don't quite mean uh, the same as our modern concept of knowledge. Scientia for Aquinas, for instance, is... Uh, uh, knowledge by rational demonstration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, of course, in that sense, testimony do- doesn't qualify as knowledge, as, as scientia. But that doesn't mean that Aquinas denies that uh, uh, testimony is knowledge in the sense in which we use the concept of knowledge today. So I, I think that uh, most the classical and medieval authors, they have a much more positive uh, view of testimony than than many post-Enlightenment uh, philosophers have. Uh, so they regard uh, often uh, testimonial knowledge as, as quite uh, reliable, and uh, and uh, it's a it's a good historical uh, knowledge that you can uh, gain through testimony. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going, to, I'm going to ask sort of a Greek follow-up question. I mean, you say that uh, knowledge, testimony is reliable. Uh, as far as the ancients and the medievals were concerned, reliable for what? For the sake of what? Uh, for example, for um, uh, historical chronicles and uh, historical mm-hmm. descriptions and uh, uh, for, for, for those purposes, I, I think that... Uh, the, the ancients and medievals, they, they had uh, uh, rather much trust in, in testimony and they, they valued it uh, highly. Uh, mm-hmm. 
both Greek and Roman historians they they valued eye eyewitness testimony very very highly. Mm-hmm. But of course, uh, when they talk about knowledge in in the sense of uh, episteme or or scientia, then it's a different matter because then then the requirement for something to count as knowledge becomes much higher. You have to have a rational demonstration of the contents of the knowledge in order to for it to 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 qualify as as real knowledge as as uh, episteme. Mm-hmm. And you know that that sort of thing seems to be what a lot of folks have a suspicion of testimony for in the modern period and. And I'm not sure how this position has fared in recent years, but a decade ago, I know for sure, one could probably sell some books in the Christian book market by peddling a Christianity that wasn't based on, you know, propositional dogma. That's usually the phrase that got thrown about. But something else, whether it's personal relationship or mystical intuition or really anything other than propositions, it was sort of a mild curse word in the Christian book market, at least in North America. Now, your book... Uh, What I like about it is that it argues pretty nicely that propositions don't go away just because we want them to. But a lot of our listeners, I'm going to have a hunch, don't have a really rigorous philosophical notion of what a proposition is. Can you tell us as, as briefly or at whatever length you'd like what a proposition is and why is it that you want to remind us that they are at the core of Christian faith? Well, there is, of course, a big uh, philosophical debate about uh, the notion of proposition. But uh, <clears throat> uh, to simplify, you can say that the proposition is is what the declarative sentence expresses. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thought contents of uh, uh, the thought contents that uh, that the declarative sentence expresses, or the meaning of the sentence, you can say. So, for instance, if you have the sentence "Snow is white," mm-hmm. that's a different sentence from the German "Schnee ist weiß." Right. But the two, the two sentences, even though they are different linguistic items, have the same meaning. They express the same thought contents, mm-hmm. and that's the proposition. So you can you can uh, say that the proposition is uh, a thought contents. Or some philosophers also uh, uh, they they uh, uh, view propositions as uh, identical to to facts or true propositions are identical to facts. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, I think uh, well this might suffice to get a. a a reasonable understanding of a, of a proposition, what, what it is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, why are they important? Why, why is propositional knowledge important for Christian faith? Uh, uh, in the book, I, I argue that in order to have a personal relationship to, to well, just about anything, Mm-hmm. You have to have some propositional knowledge about that thing. You have to grasp some propositions about uh, the thing you, you are related to. So you cannot, for instance, have a conscious attitude such as love towards something that you don't have a conception right, about. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, that's why it's important that if, if, if God wants us to have a personal relationship, some kind of personal communion with, with God, then God must make sure that we know some propositions about him, or at least that we are justified in believing some propositions mm-hmm. about him. Because otherwise, 
we cannot relate in this personal way to, to God. Right. So, I mean, if I can rephrase and you can tell me if I'm getting it basically right or not, uh, in order to love Jesus, which is often one of those alternatives, you know, we don't need uh, theological propositions. We just need to love Jesus. Uh, that relies on a groundwork of propositions like Jesus is a person who is still living in a way that makes love intelligible. I mean, is that is is that something like what you're getting at? Yeah, yeah, I, I think you you got it uh, correctly. And I and, and honestly, I you know I I can't even remember if a proposition has to be a simple term or if it can be a a string of subjects and predicates like I just put together. But uh, yeah, I mean you know that that seems to be you know the the groundwork that you're laying. And honestly, once you put that in place, I think a lot of the things that you argue for a little bit later in the book make some sense. Uh, and I mean fairly early in that book. Uh, you insist that Christian theology that is to remain recognizably Christian is always going to involve that propositional uh, revelation, even in cases of, and maybe even especially in cases of, sort of mystical visions. Uh, like I said, I really like this section of the book. Can you tell our listeners a little bit, why is it that you need propositions for a mystical vision to be a Christian vision? Well, there are some uh, theologians who who argue that uh, it's possible to kind of get in touch with God or to experience God in a way that does not involve propositions or, or concepts. Mm-hmm. So you can have some kind of experience of God that is totally independent of concepts and that has no propositional structure whatsoever. Uh, the problem with this suggestion, uh, which is represented, for instance, by Friedrich Schleiermacher, mm-hmm. uh, is that uh, it's very hard to see how an experience can be about something specific if it's totally depend- independent of concepts and totally non-linguistic, so to speak. Mm-hmm. How can an experience be about God without having some kind of uh, if not the subject of the experience has some kind of conception of, of God or some, some idea what 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 he experiences. Mm-hmm. So, so, so that's a general problem with, with uh, those who argue that, that uh, mystical visions and the like, they are totally non-conceptual and ineffable in, in, in every uh, way. But of course, I mean, uh, you can also picture mystical experiences as conceptually structured as as having some kind of propositional content Mm -hmm. Uh, and those experiences could conceivably provide uh, some kind of knowledge of of God Uh, uh, but uh, my point in the book is that these kinds of experiences would not suffice uh, as a foundation for theology Mm-hmm. Um, because they, they cannot give us the right kind of knowledge of God, the kind of knowledge that allows us to recognize God as God and not just as a very powerful agent or something like that. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So in other words, I mean, to have a mystical experience of God relies on a certain prepositional, uh, I don't even know what to say, uh, a prepositional network, if you will, in which that vision makes sense as a revelation of God. Yeah, and the problem with with specifically with experiences of of God or revelations of God is that 
God is a very special object because because uh, uh, God has some very special properties that that make mm-hmm. him to be God. For instance, necessary existence is a traditional attribute of God. Uh, God is the ground of being, mm-hmm. and it's very hard to see how it would be possible to experience that something, some agent that you're encountering, for instance, in a mystical vision, Mm -hmm. has the property of necessary existence or the property of being the ground of everything else that exists. It's very hard to see how an experience can mediate this kind of of knowledge. And that's why I argue in the book that in order for us to recognize God as God, we must have some additional source of information, for instance, divine testimony that God mm-hmm. reveals things about himself by speaking. Right, right. And and it's interesting, I mean, and this just now occurred to me as you were saying that, that, I mean, this has uh, at least some analogical relationship to what uh, the philosopher of science Thomas Kuhn says about uh, observation, that it's always theory-laden. I mean, is, yeah. that, is that connection a valid one, do you think, to, to what you're doing here? Yeah, uh, I think it is. It is. Uh, and uh, uh, I mean, I wouldn't agree with everything that Kuhn says about... Oh, not necessarily. No, 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 no. Not, not by any it, means. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's, it's, it's certainly relevant in this, in this context. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'd like to, to bring to our listeners one example of where testimony... Uh, is always there for something that we could call a Christian theology or even any kind of Christian experience. Uh, So if you could, talk for a moment about the resurrection and the way that your book deals with resurrection as a matter of testimony and really as inseparable from testimony. One of the things you say, and and this is how I'll set it up, is that if we were to see people rising from the dead, we would need propositions to understand that God raised them Talk to us about that. Yeah, I mean, there are some theologians, uh, f- for example, Wolfhard Pannenberg, who uh, they claim that uh, divine revelation is uh, history. Mm-hmm. So divine re- revelation takes place uh, only or exclusively through historical events. And we can understand by looking at these events, we can understand that they are kind of acts of God or something like that. And the resurrection mm-hmm. is is uh, such an event. Uh, the problem with this this idea that uh, we can conceive revelation in terms of historical events only is that uh, even if we were to see, uh, as you say, a person rising from the dead, so uh from that uh, event we cannot conclude that the the power that has uh, raised this person from the dead is uh, a power that has necessary existence that is the ground of being that is omnipotent omniscient and so mm-hmm. on that has all the the classical attributes of of god it could be a much less powerful agent who who managed to to raise for instance jesus from mm-hmm. the dead so the mere fact of the resurrection does not establish that it's god a power on whom everything depends 
mm-hmm. who is the agent behind the resurrection. So in, so in that sense, this is why we need something more. We need a, a divine testimony. If 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 God would testify and and tell us that that this is actually what what happens uh, mm-hmm. in the resurrection, then we have another source of knowledge and, and then we might be able to be rationally justified in believing that it's actually God who has risen Jesus from, from the dead. But without divine testimony, it's very difficult to conceive how we could uh, 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 rationally come to the conclusion that it's really God who is behind mm-hmm. the resurrection. Right, right. So, I mean, in other words, I mean, one of the things that you keep coming back to in this book, and again, it's not an angle that I had thought of much, is that, you know, it is the historical event. So, I mean, in that sense, you know, I I can go along with, you know, Gerhard von Rod and other folks who want to locate revelation in history, but it is the historical event made intelligible by prophetic utterance that makes something revelatory. I mean, yeah. is, that, is that a fair way to summarize what you're getting at? Yeah, and of course, uh, people like Pannenberg, he recognizes this. I mean, he, he says that uh, uh, <clears throat> in order to see the resurrection of Jesus for what it is, you, you, you need to see it in the context of Old Testament prophecies and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and my point uh, or the argument that I make in, in this book is, is that Pannenberg's account of Revelation is then actually dependent on a propositional revelation of divine testimony. Mm-hmm. So, so, so he kind of <clears throat> tacitly assumes that, well, God speaks to us, and, and that's, that's how we can know that uh, an event such as the resurrection of Jesus is a divinely caused event but mm-hmm. he doesn't talk so much i mean he he he, he doesn't use the, the the concept of proposition propositional revelation or divine testimony he just talks about revelation as history and i think that's a bit misleading because mm-hmm. if you look closer to his theory you see that it presupposes some kind of divine testimony to be intelligible right right and i mean you know honestly that's what i like about this is that it's got that uh it's got the feel of a close examination of what we already assume at the roots of things, you know? So in other words, I mean, we can say it's not propositions, but it is history. Uh, I mean, your retort seems to be that, well, whenever we talk about history, we're talking about a propositional tradition at the outset anyway. Yes. And, and that, uh, uh, much of what uh, the theologians say uh, presupposes that it's it's not just a propositional tradition; it's it's a tradition that is based on actual divine speech. Mm-hmm. Because right, otherwise, right. otherwise, uh, otherwise, the tradition could not be truthful. It could not be. We we would have no reason to rely on it. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the uh, bodies of, of of criticism that you put together in this book. Uh, has to do with more recent and less recent uh, theologians who minimize the propositional content of Christian confession. You've already mentioned Schleiermacher and you've already mentioned uh, Ponnenberg. Talk to us a little bit about Karl Rahner as a theologian that minimizes the proposition as an element of Christian theology. And tell us a little bit about the difficulties that arise due to that neglect. Yeah, yeah. Uh... Well, I think Rahner he 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 conceives of revelation uh, 
as as non conceptual and non propositional uh, uh, he conceives of revelation as some kind of transcendental experience of god mm-hmm. and this, this this experience is totally without propositional structure but then we interpret this uh, experience in propositional terms so uh, i wouldn't say that runner minimizes the, the content the propositional content of Christian faith. I mean, you think that we can we can somehow derive propositions from this non-propositional revelation. So we can okay. derive propositions about God and Jesus and uh, and uh, salvation and, and things like that. But revelation itself is non-propositional, and and this is where where the problem is located because uh, if revelation itself is non-propositional then it's very uh, difficult to see how it can kind of be translated into uh, how it can be given conceptual or propositional form. Uh, How can we justify a specific conceptual interpretation of this non-conceptual revelation? And that's uh, basically the problem that that, uh, philosophers calls, uh, uh, call the myth of the given. Mm-hmm. And the myth of the given is the idea that, that uh, something non-conceptual, non-propositional can justify knowledge. And there's a lot of critique of this idea that a non-conceptual uh, experience, for instance, can justify conceptual knowledge. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is what I draw on in, in my book. And I, I, I follow the philosophers who criticize this idea and I see that uh, Karl Rahner, he falls vict- victim to, to this, uh, these problems that, that pertain to the relationship between a non-propositional revelation and uh, a propositional uh, uh, Christian faith. Right, right. And it strikes me that, I mean, the, the particularly difficult bits of Christian theology that would be, I guess, especially... Uh, hard to construe without propositions would be the things that are historically particular, right? Uh, You know, unless one were present in Jerusalem in the first century to say that Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, it seems would just by necessity be a a matter of testimony. Mm. So, I mean, you know, that's one of those things that, uh, you know, as I read your book again, it's, it's not that, uh, it's not that I find myself disagreeing. It's more that I find myself thinking, okay, how how is it that these folks got the impulse in the first place to try to minimize propositions? I mean, in your view, where does that impulse come from largely in the 19th and 20th centuries to minimize propositions in theology? Yeah, I think you have to distinguish between two things here. It's... Uh, it's one thing to uh, to conceive uh, Christianity as itself as a kind of non-propositional or or merely as a kind of emotional experience or or something like, like that. Mm-hmm. Is and uh, there are not many theologians who want to go down this road totally and to kind of uh, uh, abolish everything propositional about Christianity. But there are many theologians who who. Uh, who are very suspicious to the idea of propositional revelation. And uh, propositional revelation is basically uh, 
the same as divine speech. The, the, the okay. idea that God, right. God communicates propositions by, by, by speaking. And, and uh, uh, this idea uh, has been very stepmotherly treated in, in, <laughs> in recent <laughs> theology. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's, it's a bit hard to speculate what, what's it due to. I, one reason that I point to in the book is, is a general suspicion about testimonial knowledge since, mm-hmm. since the Enlightenment. Uh, and a general suspicion towards trusting authorities, and of course, also it's it's probably also some kind of some kind of a suspicion about the idea of of uh, the supernatural or some kind of supernatural revelation. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I think that many theologians they see problems with. Uh, conceiving the Bible as divine speech or as to, 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 to acknowledge God as the author of the Bible because that idea can seem to create a whole lot of problems mm-hmm. concerning the, the historical reliability of the, the Bible and possible contradictions between different Gospels and so on and immoral, uh, seemingly immoral views being propagated by the Bible and, and so on. Uh, so I think that uh, many theologians are suspicious to the idea of propositional revelation for for all these uh, reasons. And what I try to do in the book is is to show that, uh, uh, well, first that propositional revelation is is very important. If if we don't assume uh, that propositional revelation has occurred, it's very hard to to make Christian faith coherent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also try to show that the problems with conceiving the Bible as divine speech or as authored by God in some sense is not as problematic as many people seem to think. And here I rely very much on Nicholas Wolterstorff's mm-hmm. uh, analysis of divine speech. Okay. Well, I want to take a brief sidetrack because uh, I I have read and have greatly enjoyed the work of John Milbank and his position uh, I thought it was unusual, but it, it seemed that you mentioned him basically to say you're not going to respond to him, namely because you say that he has a robust natural theology in place. Now that phrase, uh, robust natural theology, what does that mean in the context of your argument, and how does your own philosophical theological, theological project relate to John Milbank's? Yeah, it, I, I, I'm sure it can seem a little bit uh, strange to, to say that Milbank has a robust natural theology, uh, uh, because uh, Milbank's theological project uh, is very much about uh, denying that there is anything purely natural. He conceives mm-hmm. uh, revelation and uh, grace as kind of. Uh, suffusing everything uh, so 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 you could say that for Milbank there is no such thing as a natural theology in the sense of a kind of knowledge of God uh, mm-hmm. derived without reliance of, of on revelation and faith but uh, what I argue is that uh, uh, Milbank has a very positive view of uh, the world's ability to to reveal God, 
And this is because he views the world itself as participating in God. So uh, the world cannot be truly understood without reference to God. The, God, the world is not world without uh, God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, in that sense, you, you can say that, that for Milbank, everything reveals God. Right. And, 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 but this, this revelation of God in, in everything in the world is, of course, dependent on grace for Milbank. So it's not a purely natural uh, thing. It's dependent on grace. But, but still, since he has such an optimistic view of the world's ability to, to, to reveal God, uh, I, I, I choose to, to um, compare his uh, uh, view of revelation with uh, those who think that who are very positive to our the ability of our natural reason to to uh, acquire knowledge of God. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's it's a bit complicated, but but uh, oh yeah yeah. Uh, but basically, I'm I'm sympathetic to much of what Milbank uh, to to much in his general theological project, even though I think that when it comes to revelation. I think his view on revelation is is a bit misconceived. Right, right. And I mean, tell me if I'm I'm getting the basic difference that your project bears to Milbank's here. I mean, what you seem to be saying in contradistinction to Milbank is that uh, the world is always a gift of God, but as far as revealing the nature of God, the main vehicle for that revelation is not the structure of the world as world, but in divine speech that allows us to disclose the world. Yeah, uh, okay. you're correct. Yeah, that, that's correct. So, so, so what I object to in Milbank's view of revelation is that he, he denies that revelation gives what he calls extra information about God. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and so he views revelation as a, a kind of a heightening of our natural reason. Mm-hmm. Because reason itself is is a participation in God's reason, and revelation simply means that God enhances our reason, so we can see things more clearly. We can see mm-hmm. uh, we can see the divine uh, in events and objects in the world, uh, and I I I I I think that this this is not a very convincing view because. Christian faith contains many uh, truths or many claims that are very hard to see how they could kind of be derived without us getting some kind of extra informa- information from God. For instance, that uh, the claim that God will judge uh, all humans at the end of the world. It's very hard to see how this claim or this piece of knowledge could be acquired simply by an enhancement of our own reasoning powers. Mm-hmm. It seems to be impossible to, to derive this knowledge from an analysis of the structure of the world or of, of the unfolding of world history up to now or something like that. It seems that in order for us to be able to know a thing like this, God must simply tell us it, tell it to us. 
it's, it's the only way I, I can see. And and I'm surprised that Milbank cannot acknowledge this and say that well, of <laughs> course, God God gives us some extra information um, by speaking. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to turn to the Bible because I think this is one of the one of the really strong parts of this book. And when you're talking about divine speech and specifically about divine testimony in the scriptural witness, uh, you propose a robust theory of spoken discourse. Uh, and this largely starts it starts its course in your fourth chapter. In this theory, the witness in a testimonial utterance could be speaking in the person of the sending agent or merely delivering a message from the sending agent. Now, that's a that's a subtle distinction but it's an important one what is the difference between those two kinds of spoken discourse uh, yeah uh, I think if, if we take the case uh, when when God uh, speaks through a human agent and I call this uh, double agency Mm-hmm. discourse uh, and and here I'm very in- indebted to Nicholas Wolterstorff again it's his theory of divine speech that I I'm applying here and uh, uh, well we can imagine that God speaks uh, to uh, sp- speaks to a person for example in a religious experience and mm-hmm. that this person then hears the message of God and delivers it further to to other people and that that then he just uh, delivers a message from God but we can also uh, imagine that God speaks through the human agent in the same sense as a president can speak through an ambassador Mm -hmm. and this can happen because God can appropriate the the speech acts of the human person Uh, and uh, that means that when the human person speaks, it's at the same time God speaking. And uh, well, we can take an example. For, for instance, I can I can speak by appropriating another person's discourse. If if my friend uh, uh, delivers a speech at a party, and then mm-hmm. I I stand up and I say that well, I agree completely with what my friend said. Then I then I I have appropriated. Uh, my friend's discourse to say something on my own and the god could do the same thing for instance with biblical texts or or he could deputize people to speak in his name so so that what they say is god's uh, uh, discourse at the same time and uh, one ad- advantage with with uh, conceiving divine speech according to this model, the appropriation model or double agency model, instead of conceiving it as God delivering messages to humans to to, uh, deliver further, is that uh, uh, we don't have to assume that God speaks to people in religious experience, for instance. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can leave it open in what way God influences the human speakers and how much he influences the human speakers. Uh, uh, God, I mean, a president need not dictate the very words that an ambassador says. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's still the president who speaks through the ambassador. And in the same way, it could be that a human person, God does not dictate, God does not speak to that person, but 
in some other way influences what he says and and it counts as as God's speech. Mm-hmm. And also it seems that this can give I think a you know a a philosophically uh, adequate account of the fact that you have strong stylistic differences between the oracles of Amos, for example, uh, and those of Ezekiel, just to pick two at random, uh, that, you know, these different prophets are deputized, to use your term, uh, but that the words that appear on the page are at the same time coming from a human personality. I mean, is that something you had in mind when you're trying to work out this part of the the project? Yeah, certainly. Uh... And uh, this model can also account for the fact that uh, uh, much of, of many biblical texts seem to presuppose false uh, conceptions of the world, mm-hmm. for instance, uh, geocentric conceptions and things like that. And if if we use this model of divine speech, then we can account for, for this by saying that, well, God... Uh, appropriates uh, the speech of, of the human agents but mm-hmm. he doesn't that does not mean that he dictates every word or that he appropriates everything that these human agents or authors say or write mm-hmm. so we can we can distinguish between god's point and the human way of making that point right right and i mean that that sort of historicizing move that you're making there i mean i think does give us a lot more latitude than what I would call a sort of Quranic model of, ins- of in- inspiration where the prophetic voice is simply a, you know, uh, a conduit for transmission of precise Hebrew or Arabic, whichever language you're working in, words. Mm. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Well, one of, the, one of the special cases that you take up when you talk about biblical discourse as divine testimony is that of the Psalms, and you note that in this category you have neither the dictation of God's words to humanity nor even a message sent from God to humanity, but you have the appropriation of human words spoken towards God as divine discourse. Uh, Now, a complex picture of divine testimony, particularly in Scripture, is emerging by the end of chapter 4, how would you articulate, I mean, the most important points in this theory of divine speech that you're going on here? What's most important to keep in mind when we regard the Bible as divine speech particularly? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's... Uh, uh, it's uh, it, it's impossible to... to uh, to conceive of the Bible according to only one uh, model for divine speech. So you have mm-hmm. to have these this, uh, different models, uh, precisely because, as you say, the, the Psalms, they are not directed from from God to humans, but often the other way around. And, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I mean, authorship can, can, can be conceived in many ways and on many levels i mean you you can say if i take a text written actually written by another person and and i include it in in uh, as a chapter in a book mm-hmm. uh, then i have done something with the text that can potentially change the text's meaning 
by contextualizing it in a new way. And uh, we can imagine that uh, God uh, does something like this uh, when, when, when the church, if, if we imagine that the church's act of settling on the biblical canon as it mm-hmm. looks today, if we imagine that to be uh, at the same time an act of God appropriating uh, the biblical texts for his purpose of communicating, uh, then we can see that here God does something that that potentially affects the the, the uh, meaning of of the biblical texts because they are put in a certain context in the context of the canon as as a whole, and uh, so, so and that means that you might have to read certain parts of the Bible in a different way than you would read them if they are taken as separate texts. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I, I take as, as an example in the book, uh, uh, the book of Joshua, and uh, all the, the the war narratives in in that in that uh, in that book, and and uh, uh, because it's part of the Bible, it must be understood as being authored by the same subject who authored the Gospels. And that will affect how we read these these uh, war narratives. Mm-hmm. So so we might have to interpret them differently than than we would otherwise have done had they been just a separate book. Mm-hmm. So I think this this uh, uh, um, yeah it's it's important in order to make sense of, of of the Bible as divinely authored. You have to have something like this model or. Mm-hmm. Well, and what I find so fa- uh, satisfying about it uh, is that it, it does, you know, avoid the the trap of saying that the Bible is exclusively God's words to humanity because that doesn't really count for the Psalms. But it also tends to avoid another extreme that I, I've seen written in a number of places that regards the entirety of the Bible as a sort of entirely human response to this non-propositional mystical intuition that you talk about elsewhere in the book. I think that this model of it that allows for a plurality of kinds of testimony and a plurality of kinds of divine discourse allows the Bible to, well, allows us when we read the Bible, I'll put it that way, to take seriously the different speakers and the different hearers and the differences among the Bibles in a way that a sort of one rule globalizing system doesn't. Um, mm. Let me ask you this. I mean, the as the Bible reading part of this book goes, uh, how do you see your work relating to some of the trends in biblical scholarship that tend to read the Bible as literary text primarily? Do you think that they are uh, projects that can be in harmony with each other? Or do you see yourself as running counter to them or... How do you see that relationship? Uh, well, I think there are many different uh, kinds of ex- exegesis uh, mm-hmm. uh, done according to a literary, I mean, with a literary understanding of, of the, the biblical texts. Uh, so so I, I cannot say something in general, I think, okay. about, <laughs> about that. But, uh, but I mean... Uh, 
Uh, I, I think one sympathetic trend in, in, in contemporary biblical scholarship is, is uh, uh, the idea that you can, you, can, you can read a text, you can take it for, for what it is and read it as it is, as, as a whole, and not go behind the text immediately and, and look for different uh, uh, redactions and, and uh, different sources and, and, uh, or place it in a certain historical context. You can read it as, as, as some kind of almost self, self-sufficient whole. Mm-hmm. And, and that I think uh, these kind of projects can, can be in, in harmony with, with, uh, with uh, rather traditional Christian theology, I think. Uh, you take the text as it is and, and you, 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 you try to make sense of it as a coherent whole. And then you can, of course, like, like uh, some modern exegetes also do, you can, you can take the canon as a whole and you can, you can read you can read uh, 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 you can read the the, the 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 biblical texts in in the context of the of the canon of course that's still very controversial for many people in in, in biblical studies but Certainly. but i think i think it's uh, it's it's uh, becoming more acceptable mm-hmm. Well, I want to introduce our listeners to one of the key terms that recurs and really frames the last stretch of Revelation as, as testimony, and that's the term doxastic responsibility. Uh, so take, take what time you will, tell our listeners a bit about the term, both its Greek roots and whether the new phrase is your coinage or something you're appropriating. Yes, the, the term I have taken from uh, John McDowell. Mm-hmm. And John McDowell is a very interesting uh, analytic philosopher uh, whose uh, theory of testimony I have uh, uh, appropriated and applied in in this book. So I'm very much dependent on on McDowell's thought on testimony. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he uses this this concept, doxastic responsibility. Doxa, of course, is the Greek word for belief. Mm-hmm. And the doxastic responsibility is is simply uh, responsibility in the belief forming process. So, when you form beliefs about reality, you have to exert a certain amount of responsibility. You cannot form beliefs anyway. You have you have to you have to uh, make sure that that uh, your beliefs are not uh, obviously contradicted by whatever evidence you, you, you have. I mean, uh, you, have to, uh, you have to look out for, for uh, possibly falsifying evidence and things like that. And, and especially in the context of testimonial knowledge, I mean, when we acquire testimonial knowledge, we have to trust people. So we have to, we have to listen to what somebody says and we, we have to take her on her words and, and trust that what she says is true. That's how we acquire testimonial knowledge. But at the same time, we cannot trust just anybody or about anything. We have to have a kind of a critical attitude at the same time to, to testimony. Uh, and, and that's where doxastic responsibility comes in. And uh, uh, many contemporary philosophers of testimony, they they uh, claim that 
you are entitled to trust a piece of testimony as long as you don't have evidence that indicates that the testimony is, is false. But you don't need to have positive evidence for the re- reliability of the testimony. Mm-hmm. So you can, even though you don't have any evidence that this is a trustworthy person and, or this is probably true, what he says, you, you, you are entitled to, to, to believe what, what the person says as long as you don't have any uh, contrary evidence, evidence that, for instance, indicates that this is a habitual liar or, or mm-hmm. this is an ignorant person or something like that. Right. And, and uh, one of the, the modes of doubting testimony that you take issue with and you know, you, you make clear in the book that you're not the first to take issue with this is the still influential uh, discourse of David Hume on miracles. Tell our listeners a little bit about the moves that he makes to doubt any testimony about unusual events and why is it philosophically that philosophers of testimony don't really take David Hume as the authority that, frankly, the popular culture tends to. Uh, yeah, uh, Hume is a very important thinker, both when it comes to testimony in general and testimonial knowledge, and especially when it comes to testimony about miracles, supernatural mm-hmm. events. Uh, and you can say that David Hume was the first uh, philosopher to formulate a reductionist uh, view of testimony. Mm-hmm. And, and a reductionist view of testimony is a view that says that uh, uh, testimony uh, can only you, testimonial knowledge can only be justified if you can construct an argument uh, that establishes that the, the testimony is probably true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this means that you, you basically are reducing a testimony to other sources of justification, for instance, inferential argument uh, and you can well the, the a common way of, of, of conceiving this is is to say that uh, in order to uh, be entitled to trust what a person says I have to I have to uh, have observed that uh, there is kind of a uh, well, I, I, I have to have reason to believe that, that this, this person tells me tells the truth most of the times. And, and, mm-hmm. and this reason I can, I can get by some kind of inductive argument. I can, I can, if I have encountered this person before, I, can, I have observed that, well, he said this and I checked it out and it, it, it was correct. And, and uh, I have done this on a number of occasions, and so I draw the conclusion that he tells the truth most of the times. And when he tells me something new, something I haven't heard before, then I can trust him because I can argue that well, he told he has told the truth truth in the in the past, so he's probably telling the truth right now too. And this is a way of reducing testimony to basically to an inductive argument. So, so mm-hmm. testimony is not a source of justification in itself, but if you back it up with an inductive argument, you, you, you can use it to gain, gain knowledge. And uh, this has been very much criticized uh, recently by anti-reductionists who claim that, 
No, we can we can take testimony as a basic source of, of uh, justification, like we take perception. So when I see that uh, John is at home, I don't need an argument to be able to to be entitled to believe that John is at home. I just see it. Mm. It's perception, and perception is a good justification of of beliefs. And in the same way, I can take testimony to be a good justification of beliefs. So when somebody tells me that John is at home, and I don't have reason to suspect that he's lying or something, mm-hmm. then I can gain knowledge by trusting this testimony. Right. So in other words, I mean, we could say that you know John is home because I've told you that. We don't say that you think he might be at home until you actually go to John's home and look. Yeah, or or until I have an inductive argument that that uh, uh, can establish that you are probably telling the truth or okay. something like that. So. All right, all right. Well, I think it's most interesting when you deploy this theory of testimonial knowledge uh, in response to a lot of modern New Testament scholarship, especially on questions of multiple attestation and other practices at the core of, for instance, John Dominic Crossan's New Testament scholarship. Um, Tell our listeners a little bit about how this philosophy of testimony uh, interacts with his brand of New Testament scholarship. Uh, And how do you imagine, philosophically and theologically, the relationship between these Gospels' status as testimonial knowledge and, like I said before, their character as literary texts with their own sense of emphasis and such. Yes, this is a very interesting area, and I I recommend uh, uh, people to to read uh, the exegete Richard Borkham. He has written very mm-hmm. interestingly about about uh, especially the Gospels as as testimony, and. Uh, uh, you can you can approach the the biblical texts or the New Testament texts in this case with different attitudes. Mm-hmm. On one extreme, you can approach them with a very suspicious attitude, and you can you can say like Dominic Crossan that I won't take anything of what the gospel says as historically reliable unless it's confirmed by different uh, sources different mm-hmm. traditions. If I have two or three different traditions that say the same thing, then I will take it seriously. Otherwise, I will dismiss it as unhistorical. Uh, and uh, if you treat the Gospels like this, uh, then uh, you will come out with very little knowledge about Jesus. I mean, you you will, you will uh, have to conclude then that we know rather little about the historical Jesus. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if you if you approach the Gospels as testimony, and uh, with uh, in terms of this uh, anti-reductionist understanding of testimony, which does not require uh, arguments in order to for us to be able to or to be entitled to to take testimony seriously, if you approach the Gospels uh, as testimony, then you you uh, are entitled to, to, to believe much more of what they say about Jesus, and you can regard it as, as, as historical knowledge that you gain. And this is how, how Borkham, for instance, approaches the Gospels. 
And this does not mean that you, you, you have to be uh, totally uncritical. Of course, there are many problems <clears throat> uh, with, uh, with uh, the relationship between the Gospels, different narratives about uh, Jesus, and, and they are not totally consistent and, and so on. But, but uh, that does not mean that you have to, you have to uh, dis- dismiss them totally as testimony. Mm-hmm. It is possible, as Bokem argues, that uh, to, to take the Gospel seriously as historical sources and yet have a critical attitude when when there is reason for it for instance when the two two gospel accounts seem to tell divergent stories about the same event or uh, then then you have reason to 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 be careful but but you you, you don't need to be overly suspicious all the time but unfortunately there has been some kind of a, uh, I think that it has evolved the culture within much biblical scholarship there critical thinking is identified with being suspicious towards uh, the, the, the sources. Mm-hmm. So the more suspicious you are, the, the higher demands you, 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 you have on, on many sources or multiple attestations, the more critical you are and the more scientific you are. But what Bokem shows, shows is that uh, this is not necessarily true. I mean, uh, there is no rational reason to dismiss the idea that the gospel is testimony and can have a historical value, even though some things that that they say about Jesus are not attested by multiple sources or traditions. Mm-hmm. So I think, but I think this is this is very interesting, and, and as I said, I recommend Bokem's uh, books in this respect. Right, and it strikes me that I mean this sort of attitude toward testimony doesn't, uh, I guess it doesn't rule out you know theories of the gospel compositions where you know because, for instance, the Gospel of Mark is probably taking its written form during the siege of Jerusalem, that the disciples would have remembered the temple sayings of Jerusalem more acutely because of what's going on around them. In other words, it doesn't exclude the contribution of the human author in the process it simply says that what they are saying it might be derived from memory rather than from invention yeah yeah and and uh, uh, i think bokem has a rather credible theory about uh, how eyewitness uh, knowledge mm-hmm has kind of been used in the composition of the the gospel that the the authors of the gospels have, have drawn rather heavily on on eyewitness testimony mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and and that's of course uh, very very interesting and, and in in my book I I I use uh, Bokem's theory to argue that it's reasonable to to view uh, the gospels as 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 testimony and and as based ultimately on eyewitness knowledge of the events. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, Matt, I've been steering this conversation up to this point, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want to go ahead and let you have the last word. What would you want our listeners to hear about your book, about philosophical theology, about testimony, or about whatever else here in our last few minutes? Well, the, the point of the book... Uh, uh, or, or one message, at least, uh, of the book is is that uh, uh, knowledge 
is important uh, even in, in, in religious contexts contexts and and knowledge has been um, the importance of knowledge has been neglected in, 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 in some contemporary theology so often you hear that uh, God is unknowable and if you if you claim to know something about God, then you're kind of trying to capture God in the net of human concepts and beliefs, and you you're not respecting God properly because because you claim to have certain knowledge of Him. So the apophatic uh, uh, tendency uh, in theology has been very strongly emphasized in in some camps uh, recently. And I think, of course, there is some truth to this, and you, you you cannot you cannot claim to know God or God's essence in the sense that that you know other things, and all speak speech about God, I think, should be conceived analogically. So so our words don't mean exactly what they mean when we talk about uh, uh, tables and chairs, and when we talk, when we talk about God. But that said. Uh, I think that one one message of the book is that uh, without knowledge of God, uh, theology won't cohere at all, and and uh, it has been uh, too little attention to 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 how how important this cognitive dim- dimension of 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 uh, uh, faith uh, is recently, and I think that in this context, uh, the concept of divine testimony is very useful and very important because this concept explains how it's possible to know certain things about a God who we cannot know by by other means. We can just know uh, many things about God. We can only know if God communicates with us and and if he communicates with us through some kind of linguistic means with concepts and, and language and uh, this is something that I, I hope that that uh, that uh, theologians will will take more seriously and not dismiss as some kind of fundamentalist idea or something like that all right well Matt thank you very much for coming on the show Thank you very much, Nathan. It has been a pleasure. And listeners, I want to thank you for once again downloading and tuning in. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our intern is Zach Schmidt. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. And this is Nathan Gilmore in behalf of Christian Humanist Profiles saying, Go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.